Hey, Axa. Hey, Callum. How's it going? Yeah, really well. You know, living the lockdown life. Axa Hussein, my co-producer, will be taking the lead this episode. So maybe for the listeners, could you just introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm a pupil barrister specialising in criminal and also public law. um, And I essentially help you to produce these podcasts. This episode looks at parole, what's happening in general and how is the coronavirus pandemic affecting a vital function of our criminal justice process. So yeah, why don't you take it away? You're listening to Unjust. A Justice Gap podcast. I'm Axa Hussein. So what is parole? Parole is essentially the process by which a prisoner can be released from prison before their sentence is over. So I'm Martin Jones. I'm Chief Executive of the Parole Board. My day-to-day job is ensuring that the Parole Board is working as effectively as possible to carry out its remit, which is to decide whether prisoners are safe to be released back into society. For the most part, the inner workings of the Parole Board go under the radar in discussions around current affairs. When we do hear about it, it's usually because a decision has been made to release a criminal who's committed the most abhorrent crimes. We saw that in early 2018 when the serial sex offender John Warboys, known as the Black Cab Rapist, was deemed to be eligible for release. Huge public outcry launched the Parole Board onto the front pages and into select committee rooms. Eventually, that decision was reversed and he remains in prison today. Just last week, the parole board deemed a man called Wendell Baker suitable for release. In 1997, he beat and raped 66-year-old Hazel Blackwell. Again, perhaps understandably, the public reaction was generally one of outrage. So why do we see such criminals being released by the parole board? The parole board is there to only look at those who've committed the most serious criminal offences. So we only look at those who've committed murder offences, very serious sexual offences or very serious violent offences. There are very few minor offences in the parole system. So your standard burglary individual doesn't appear for the parole board, they're automatically released by the way the law works. We only look at people who've committed the most serious offences. By its nature then, the parole board must deal with cases that could provoke public outrage. Clearly there are always cases such as this that cause concern to the public because they have committed serious offences and of course they have to serve that minimum period. Uh, I think in this case, I think the period was around eight years to serve for punishment. But at that point then, the question for the parole board is, does that person remain a risk to the public? And how do they determine that? Well, they'll look at all the evidence. What did the judge say at the time of sentencing? What was the cause of that offence? Have those underlying issues been dealt with? And they'll also look at reports from prison. What activities have taken place while that individual has been in custody? Have they undertaken programmes for drug treatment, alcohol treatment or mental health treatment? All of that information comes together for the parole board to look at all of that evidence and listen to experts. So a huge number of our hearings now involve hearing from the prisoner, uh, hearing from prison officers, probation officers, psychologists, psychiatrists, professionals involved in the case to look at all of that evidence as to whether that person uh, remains a risk. Once we look at that evidence, we have a statutory test to apply. Does that person's continued imprisonment remain necessary for the protection of the public? So clearly we have a you know, potential of releasing very serious criminals, but it's not a decision that we take lightly. We take it very seriously indeed to ensure that we do not release people who commit serious offences after release. And if you look at our track record, the number of people who 
commit a serious offence after being released by the parole board is less than 1%. Indeed, last year it was 0.5% of the people considered by the parole board commit a serious offence. And of course, every single one of those cases needs to be explored very carefully as to reasons why that has happened. The parole board members making those decisions comprise of those who have real expertise and experience from a variety of fields. 25% of members are retired Crown Court judges, as well as psychiatrists, psychologists and retired probation officers. Of course, I can understand why the public and the victims and the media can sometimes you know, be surprised that we've released somebody who's committed a, a serious offence. But of course, when we make that decision, we're releasing them with extensive licence conditions. So, you know, we specify where can somebody live. We specify who they can see and who they can't see. We sometimes have huge exclusion zones in place to perhaps stop them contacting a victim again. So those are really significant restrictions on somebody's liberty. And if that person breaches those conditions, they can be returned to custody. In response to the outcry of the Wendell Baker case, the Justice Secretary asked the parole board to review their decision to release him. Two other things that I would like to say about this particular case, which may help the audience understand things. Uh, certainly the recent controversy we've seen in recent years on a case like Warboys was the fact that the parole board could not explain the reasons why it made its decision. Now, we now do that. So the recent coverage of the Baker case, the parole board has released a summary of its, its reasons that can be released to the media, can be released to the public. And then secondly, that decision is a provisional decision. And last July, the parole board started a new system whereby either the Secretary of State for Justice or a prisoner can seek reconsideration of the decision if we've acted irrationally or we've been procedurally unfair in that decision making. And I think that's a, a really crucial safeguard in the system. We make 25,000 decisions a year. I'm absolutely sure that we get the overall majority of those decisions right in law but actually this provides an avenue for people to check that we are doing it right it's important i think in in any civilized society that you allow the you know the concept of redemption the fact that people can change and i've met many many prisoners who i think actually you know if you didn't know that they were a prisoner you wouldn't know it they've become well adjusted good citizens, despite the fact they committed a serious offence many years beforehand. I think the concept of second chances is incredibly important, in as much as, though, I would say that actually it's also important that you keep people in custody if they remain a risk to the public. And uh, the problem also doesn't shirk from that part of it as well. And there are people that have been in prison for 20 or 30 years longer than the judge originally said, because we think they continue to represent a risk to the public. And obviously that's the way the law should work. But of course, by having a parole board there, you're ensuring that that continued imprisonment is lawful. Nobody would want any, any system to keep people in prison unlawfully. Parole is integral to the functioning of a democratic and lawful society. So, what is happening now at a time when the threat of coronavirus, both inside and out of prisons, has turned normal practice on its head? Can you introduce yourself for our audience? Dean Kingham, Swain and Coast Solicitors, a prison law and public law lawyer, also sit on the Association of Prison Lawyers. So I'm the parole board lead for the committee and the association. So you're basically the go-to guy for all things prison related at your firm. I am, yes. Yeah. I asked Dean Kingan to describe what a parole board hearing looked like before the pandemic took hold. A normal parole board hearing would effectively involve inside and outside probation officer, obviously myself or suitable lawyer, expert witnesses, whoever you call. The majority of the time it's a forensic psychologist, any prison officers, family members, etc. We all meet in a uh, normally a very poor room 
within a prison. It can be poor for a number of reasons, such as being incredibly small or just not suitable. And a hearing takes place in the prisons. Bring a deadly virus into the mix in small, stuffy prison rooms with lots of people. Well, there's no doubt that the risk to prisoners, staff and thus the wider community is very high. So, as expected, the parole board had to stop in-person hearings. So, on Sunday the 22nd of March, I actually had to travel to Lay Hill Prison, which is on the outskirts of Bristol, for an in-person hearing on the 23rd. And because of the whole situation with the coronavirus, I was in contact with Marcin Jones, the Chief Executive of the Parole Board, to, to work out what was likely to happen. And on that Sunday evening, we had a conversation. And at the time, it looked as though hearings would continue in person. However, overnight, following the Lord Chief Justice's guidance, the situation promptly changed. And the reason I'm saying this is because it was as a result of the Lord Chief Justice and Martin really trying to lead on this, that the decision was taken to postpone all face-to-face hearings. At that point, it was still unclear from the government, and it was only later that evening, Monday the 23rd, that Boris made the announcement that he did. This year, the parole board has held over 8,200 parole hearings face-to-face in a prison with a panel of parole board members sitting opposite uh, the prisoner, with offender managers, offender supervisors, a lawyer in the room. Martin Jones, CEO of the Parole Board. You can imagine that when the coronavirus situation emerged, that created huge problems for the Parole Board. How could we possibly hold a fair and effective hearing with people two metres apart in a prison in the current crisis? And it very quickly became evident to us in the middle of March that it was not going to be possible to sustain safe hearings. So we paused all face-to-face hearings And at that point, we made a statement that we would be seeking to find other ways of progressing those cases, because the one thing that we did not want to happen was to bring the whole system to a halt, because prisoners are entitled, as a matter of fairness, to have their detention kept under review. So what does the parole process look like or sound like now? Well, they're progressing many more paper reviews where perhaps oral evidence isn't required. And quite a significant number of cases are decided in that way. But for other cases where you do need to take oral evidence, we have been proceeding by way of telephone hearings to ensure you still have an opportunity to ask questions and the prisoner can have a voice in the process and you can progress that in that way. Now, that started off with relatively modest numbers, but more than a thousand of those hearings have now been directed. And then alongside that, quickly accelerating, we are really ramping up video hearings directly from a member laptop on a call perhaps rather like this one where you have a a prisoner on a laptop and a parole member on a laptop and everybody else giving evidence remotely safely as part of that and ensuring there's a fair hearing to ensure that uh, those cases can proceed. And what does Martin say about their effectiveness? So far actually our backlog is going down rather than up and I think that's a really reassuring time actually we're progressing more cases than we ordinarily would. We're doing that in a safe fashion, in a fair fashion And the number of releases actually are pretty much on a par with what we'd ordinarily expect. Up to today's date, we've released around about 550 prisoners during the coronavirus lockdown. That's almost exactly what I'd have expected to have happened at this point. And indeed, I expect the numbers probably to accelerate because we're trying to look in particular at the number of people recalled to custody and find other ways of concluding some of those cases at an earlier point in time. 
can you describe to our listeners? Uh, Tell us who you are. Uh, I am really sorry. (laughs) No worries. Right, I'm I'm John Turner um, of Swain and Coast Solicitors. Uh, I was until recently the chair of the Association of Prison Lawyers, uh, and I'm now the vice chair of the Association of Prison Lawyers. They wouldn't let me go. Anybody working from home right now will understand the more trivial issues. Interruptions such as the phone ringing or kids running into the room are commonplace. But I asked John Turner and Dean Kingham, both prison lawyers, to tell me about the more worrying aspects of conducting parole hearings during the pandemic. I've found it incredibly frustrating. We're obviously conducting all of our hearings remotely using telephone link, which has been challenging to say the least. But the more frustrating thing is, whilst the parole board are telling us that it's, it's business as usual, that's not my interpretation of it at all. And I'm becoming quite frustrated because a lot of cases are effectively sitting uh, and we're not being able to make the progress we, we otherwise would. An example of that was, was the hearing I conducted this morning. I'd made a very sensible request for a deferral, uh, which of course they they knocked back on the basis that there's no guarantee when the identified work will be able to be done. So outwardly, it might look like an effective parole board hearing. They've considered the case and they've knocked the poor chap back. But ultimately, it could have deferred for a few months and we could have had a more sensible review. And in truth, it it feels like we're coming up against more obstacles than ever before. A prisoner seeking parole has to show that they've completed offender management courses in prison. There must also be an approved place that they can live in upon release. Plus, there is often the requirement of supervision on the outside. However, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, inside prisons and out in the community, it's become far more difficult to make sure that these provisions are in place to assist the transitioning of a prisoner back into society. We don't have approved premises available to us. The supervision in the community is minimal at the minute. Drug and alcohol testing isn't taking place because, of course, that involves fairly close personal contact with people. Lots of probation officers are working from home. I'm asking the question that that those of us in the community are asking, which is, when is it going to return to something more normal? I'm not saying it will return to normality quickly, but the community are asking for a roadmap, as Mr Johnson calls it. Yet prisoners are, at the moment, really subject to 23, 23 and a half hour lockdown. And from what I can understand, are being told that this could go on into next year. What do you think about the way the prisoner is behaving? I mean, there, there must be a lot that comes from being in the room with people, seeing body language and all that. Can you talk to me a bit about that? You, to an extent, you dehumanise the prisoner. Um, because often, often it's the, you know, you're, you're looking at the body language when you're making an assessment on whether someone's being genuine in the remorse they're showing or, you know, are they engaged in impression management? Don't get me wrong, I I think we would struggle to argue against some cases being heard remotely, but there's a lot of complex cases that need to be face-to-face. And I don't think it's necessarily right that for those cases where there's victim involvement, that's victims give their evidence over a video link or a telephone link because I think for everybody involved in the system and to ensure public confidence in the system there's a need to have face-to-face hearings. 
I think the thing that's really clear to me is we need to be flexible because I think none of us knows the future in relation to how long the current restrictions are likely to last. Is it going to be three months or six months or a year of restrictions? So certainly in leading what the parole board approach is, the key is flexibility that actually, you know, you could find that in three to six months time, some level of normality could return and you could be holding uh, parole hearings physically in a prison. But I think it will look differently to how it does now. Ideas are constantly being suggested and that's where that flexibility may be necessary. I think there are practical ways to deal with it. One of the examples was if, if prison visits aren't happening, why couldn't you use the prison visits hall to have a socially distant parole board hearing, for example? Could you use a closed visits room where there's a screen in between you to maintain a distance for family visitors or, or for, for legal visits? If, if, it was, if it was deemed a protective measure, could we roll out a closed visit scheme? From my conversations, it seems that a lot of the problems the parole board is facing stem from the wider obstacles posed by the virus itself. That being said, Martin Jones told me that they may continue to use some of the solutions they've integrated in response to the crisis, even once things have settled. What we need to capture is what has worked uh, during the current crisis to ensure that if there are efficiencies that we can bring forward, we should embed those. One of the things that I think is a huge frustration for lawyers and for prisoners is the fact that um, sometimes the inability of us to be able to get members to the right prisons means that we can't get through as many cases in a month as we'd like to. I'd, I'd like to hold a thousand parole hearings a month if I could to ensure that I you know, keep as many cases flowing through the system as possible. But of course, I can't send a member to Exeter and Northumberland on the same day. But actually, by remote justice, you could. If you can make good decisions during a crisis period, you should be able to make good decisions in that way during normal running as well. So certainly if you go back historically, I always remind people of this, you know, sometimes people will question parole decision making now. But as I said, 15 years ago, many, many of these decisions were made entirely on the papers without anybody ever actually seeing the prisoner. I'm sure the system is far better now when you can actually properly explore and ask questions of the prisoner, psychologists and others. I think it's an incredibly important part of we're beyond the shock moment of this is real and we have to we have to face up to it and we have to deal with it and we're now at the point where we have to work out how we deal with it and if it's going to be the new normal which is this awful buzz phrase i've heard from various people if we are to get used to a new normal we we would want to know what that new normal is the public are rightly asking questions of the government now as to when schools and, and other public services will return to normal and, and prisons are no different, and they shouldn't be considered any different, but unfortunately they are, that's, that's the reality. You've been listening to Unjust, a Justice Gap podcast with me, Axel Hussein. The producer was Callum McRae, and the original music was produced by Ed Starkey. Please share us among your friends and colleagues and leave a review for us on iTunes.